KYW Original Podcasts. For more stories about the coronavirus pandemic in Philadelphia, subscribe to KYW In-Depth on the Radio.com app or wherever you listen to your podcasts. The Coronavirus Pandemic from KYW In-Depth. I'm Carol McKenzie. There's been some news lately about kids and COVID, and I wanted to find out what we have learned about how COVID-19 affects children. I wanted to get some answers to a variety of questions parents might be asking right now, like how many pediatric cases are we seeing in our area and how many have been serious? When can parents start thinking about playdates again? How can we keep kids safe when child care centers reopen? And should parents still take their kids to the doctor to get checkups and vaccines? And what happens if they don't? Dr. Jeff Gerber is an associate professor of pediatrics and epidemiology at Penn, and he's in the Division of Infectious Diseases at CHOP. He answered those questions for me and many, many more during our conversation. Let's just start out with, of course, the, 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 you know, the first basic question. What are you seeing at CHOP? by way of pediatric COVID cases? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. It's still, it's still a little bit early and we are learning every day. But in general or overall, we are seeing what I think is similar to what has been reported across the country um, and across the world, which is admittedly very little in children. And that is that children seem to be infected relatively less often and children seem to be getting relatively less sick than adults. So, you know, that's the early indication, but we have a lot to learn. I mean, we, we, as I said, the data, the data are pouring into to a certain degree, but there haven't been true population-based studies really in adults or children. So, so we're still learning, but in general, uh, our our children's hospital, like other children's hospitals, have not been overwhelmed by patients as as some adult hospitals have. Can you give us an idea of how many cases you have seen? I at children, I can't give you specific numbers at children's hospital. We haven't summarized those yet, but you know, overall, I will tell you that our you know our overall hospital volume is down and that's mo- that's that's mostly because like many other many other centers we have cut down to really essential activities and have postponed some elective procedures elective admissions so overall we're down and, and those spaces have not been completely you know filled by patients with covid-19 so CHOP runs a, a very extensive system of not just, you know, the hospital, but pediatricians, just doctor's offices where kids go for well checks and, and things like that. I'm assuming you're keeping track. Are kids even being tested? Are you keeping track? Do you know how many patients you have in your system who have at least reported symptoms or maybe tested positive but have not been hospitalized? Yes and no. So like many parts of the United States and, and, and the world, that the testing is still somewhat limited. CHOP is in you know, really good position because our our infectious diseases diagnostic laboratory very early on, you know, I think it was one of the first places in the state developed 
a SARS-CoV-2 specific molecular test. And so we've been able to test patients since March 9th. We do have a sense of how often patients have tested positive across the CHOP care network. You mentioned that it's not just the hospital. CHOP has 31 primary care pediatric practices, has four urgent care centers, more than 10 subspecialty care centers. We have ambulatory surgical facilities, a busy emergency department. It's, it's a true pediatric care network. And, and so we have done testing across that network. However, it's not been, you know, as I said, you know, population-based sam- sampling. We're not testing every child who, who walks in the door. So the general indications so far are that, you know, we are not seeing, you know, thousands and thousands of positive children, but we, we still don't know. I mean, you know, I'm, I'm not trying, I'm not trying to be elusive. Part of really, it's, it's, it's a lot of it's about not having tested many children. So as I'm sure you've seen in the, in the, in the news or in the literature, there are many adults and, 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 you know, young adults and children who can be asymptomatic with this infection. And we're, we, we typically are not testing asymptomatic children or children with very mild symptoms. So it's unclear as to, you know, whether there are more, you know, wh- whether we're seeing the tip of the iceberg or if children just aren't being infected as frequently. Yeah. So can you tell me about the test you mentioned, March 9th? I'm going, trying to go back in my head. I mean, testing has been a big problem in this country across the board. That seems yeah. early on in the epidemic for you guys, for, for, for the test you developed. Do I have that right? Yeah, although, you know, we only know early on based on when we started testing. But looking at the numbers that we saw early on, you know, the percentages of patients who were tested, testing positive very early on was lower than it is now. It's still not very high, but it does seem like it was early in the epidemic, at least for this region. You know, now thinking about the, you know, the United States, the first cases were recognized in Washington state. However, fairly soon after that, the epidemic shifted to the greater metropolitan New York City area and in northern New Jersey. That was, you know, that happened in early late February, early March, and, and we started to see cases in this region early March. So yes, that was early on. And so we were, you know, I think I think Children's Hospital Philadelphia has been in really good position because of testing, because the hospital mobilized to get ready to prepare for patients with COVID-19. And we have had patients with COVID-19, but have really been able to shift resources, not just laboratory resources, but personnel resources to be ready for this. And our bioresponse team and our Department of Infection Prevention and Control and really everybody across the hospital has been has been doing a terrific job and has been prepared. And, and so far, um, we've been in, in really good position to take care of, of kids who have been infected. So what have you learned about kids? I mean, I know you, you, you mentioned just a few minutes ago that you still have a lot to learn. Have you do you have any better idea of why kids seem to just get mild symptoms for the most part? No, it's a it's, it's a great question. I wish I had answers. I mean, we just we just have a sense of the numbers, right? So, you know, as I said, this all there's the caveat that we because there hasn't been real population based sampling here or anywhere, we we don't know for sure. We only know what we can see, what we can do, what we can glean from 
know, case reports and case series, which aren't the most sound epidemiologic data, but it's what we have. And so as one example, we, the CDC published a paper maybe three weeks ago that summarized all cases in the United States that had been reported to departments of public health. You know, there's differential reporting and some of that's delayed, but they found that although children make up 22% of the U.S. population, only 2% of the infections identified at that point in the United States were in children. It brings, the, brings up the question that you have posed as to why, why are children not getting infected? We're not sure. With other respiratory viruses, such as influenza, which is you know one of our major seasonal uh, respiratory viruses, we typically see kids infected frequently, and they serve as vectors of infection to older children to to adults. It doesn't seem to be the case yet, and, but we're still learning. And, and and your question is why we just don't know. I mean, it's with many respiratory viruses, children get infected more frequently because they are they haven't been around long to be immune. In this case, nobody's immune because this is a this is a novel coronavirus, but children seem to be getting getting infected less less often. Could this be because there's a certain receptor that kids don't express? Some people have postulated that, that adults have the receptor for the virus. So, you know, the, the way the virus gets into cells may be differentially ex- expressed between children and adults. But it, this is all hypothesis right now, and, and we don't know. Have you had any cases that at CHOP any severe cases in children? There have been some severe cases, but uh, fortunately, the vast majority of children have gotten better. What are the symptoms in kids, basically? They seem to be, you know, again, with the caveat that we don't have great population-based data, but the reports that we've seen, the symptoms seem to be somewhat similar to what we're seeing in adults. So uh, a good chunk of, of patients are either very mildly symptomatic or asymptomatic. And then the most common symptoms and signs we're seeing are fever, cough, sore throat, shortness of breath. In fewer patients, we're seeing myalgias, so aches and pains. Some have gastrointestinal symptoms, but those are less often than your typical sort of upper respiratory infection or upper respiratory infection symptoms. So when should parents become concerned? Yeah, I mean, we're still we're still, still learning about this virus, but I think it's really the typical things that you'd be looking for in a child with any, any infection. So high fever, but most importantly, are they, how is their breathing? So, you know, parents are great at telling the difference between when a child might be, maybe has a runny nose or a cough, but running around the room and bouncing around the room and eating everything in sight versus a kid who seems like they're limited in their activity because, you know, they can't quite run around as much and they don't seem to be as interested in playing or, you know, certainly any child who seems to be visibly struggling to breathe. And those are, you know, not necessarily specific to COVID-19, but for any type of infection in children and for, you know, for younger children who can't communicate, you know, if they're not feeding well. And like I said before, not playing as usual, that's when you would want to want to contact the doctor. So really, you know, I don't think anything necessarily specific, just the, the same types of 
signs and symptoms that would concern you for any type of infectious disease. Are you seeing, um, and I don't know if you have enough data at this point, but children who have things like diabetes, the the conditions that do make people more vulnerable to the ravages of this disease, have you seen those issues in children too who have some of these conditions? Yeah, it's a good question because we're still sorting out just what underlying comorbidities put even adults at risk. And, you know, as you mentioned, some of the signals have been diabetes, have been high blood pressure. Those are are much less common in children, as you mentioned. So, so far, we aren't seeing that because, you know, like I said, we said, the type of diabetes that most adults have is not very common in children. So it could be the reason we're not seeing it is because, you know, it's, it's not a risk factor in children, but it could also be just because the numbers are lower and it hasn't manifested yet. In general, the kids that we have seen with COVID-19 have been essentially a typical population that we see, and we, we have not seen any specific types of underlying or comorbid medical conditions as being a major risk factor. But again, I really want to pause to say that we we don't know for sure. Yeah. Something that was in the news lately was out of the UK, the health department there issued a medical alert for a condition called multi-system inflammatory state for kids. And they had seen a rise over a few weeks in London and elsewhere in the UK. And it, they they describe uh, it as also toxic shock and Kawasaki disease. And I'm wondering if you're concerned about that, if doctors here in the U.S. are concerned about that. Yeah, we're always concerned when we see case reports like that, especially when busy you know pediatricians and experienced pediatricians in hospitals report something like that, because you typically aren't going to report something unless you feel like it's unusual. I will say that, you know, we just don't know yet. I've read those reports, maybe not all of them, but some of those reports. We, as an infectious diseases division, share those reports and talk about them um, amongst ourselves. I'll say a couple things. You know, one, when because COVID-19 is, is top of mind with everybody and because people are starting to test more and more, you sometimes see conditions that seem like associations but might be true, true and unrelated. So it's, these are things that we really need to study and pay attention to. We have not yet in the United States had official reports of more children with inflammatory syndromes. However, a lot of times the reporting is, is behind what's actually happening. And people, I will say, you know, many doctors, infectious diseases doctors, other, other physicians across the you know, United States and in pediatrics are paying attention and are, are looking into this uh, to see if these these inflammatory syndromes are truly something that is triggered by or made wor- or worsened by the COVID-19, the virus that causes COVID-19, or if it's a just, you know, this is the season for COVID-19 and some of these cases will happen um, and, and it's, it's not an association. Well, I think the thing is, doctor, that you talk to any, I've talked to now several infectious disease specialists and epidemiologists and you are tracking a novel virus, and so it's very difficult to figure out, you know, what is happening. And it's gone from a respiratory, believed to be mostly a respiratory disease. And even though it is, we are now seeing, you know, blood clotting, strokes, and other issues associated with the disease. So 
it seems to me like everybody is just trying to figure out what's happening here. And when I when I read the multi-system inflammatory state, the first thing I thought of was a cytokine storm that we've been hearing so much about lately. Are they one and the same? Related. So it, it, it depends on what we're talking about. So certainly the cytokine storm that people are talking about seems to be part of the worst cases of COVID-19 infection, particularly in adults. And this is still being characterized. You know, taking a step back, cytokine storms, you know, quote unquote storms is a, is a fairly, you know, general descriptor of what happens when you get really sick from many types of infections. You know, cytokines are messengers that white blood cells use to call other white blood cells to come in and then creating a state of inflammation. And in many cases, that's a good thing. You want to bring white cells to kill whatever infectious disease you have in the area. Sometimes that seems to get out of control. And we are learning more and more about the, you know, the quote-unquote cytokine storm in many different, many different conditions. The inflammatory syndromes that have been reported from the UK probably involve cytokines, but it may be a different type of cytokine storm, so to speak, than the one that people have, have started to characterize with, with COVID-19 infections. They, they might not all be the same thing. Gotcha. And, and I'll say that the conditions that you are referring to from the UK, these inflammatory syndromes, you mentioned Kawasaki disease, you mentioned toxic shock syndrome. Those are all versions of an overactive immune response that do involve cytokines, but they might mm-hmm. be they might be different. As states, you know, states are beginning to talk about phased reopening of the of the economies and a lot of states, New Jersey's already started opening parks and beaches. Um, Is it okay for kids to play outside and is it okay to take your kids to ride their bikes at the park? Yes, just being careful to follow what the local guidance is. So certainly it's okay for kids to go outside. We want to practice social distancing. So six feet apart, wearing a mask, making sure always to practice good hand hygiene. This virus can, if somebody is symptomatic, we think that the virus can be transmitted through large droplets. So meaning, you know, this is where the six feet comes from if you're close together, but it certainly can be spread getting it on your hands, transmitting it from your hands to somebody else's hands to their face or on what we call a fomite. So on surfaces like doorknobs, for example, um, that are that are shared. So certainly practicing good hand hygiene. But yeah, we want to get kids outside. We want to get them playing, riding bikes, going for walks, exercising in any way. But we do we do need to keep maintain social distancing. So it really shouldn't be a bunch of kids all together sharing playground equipment. You know, playdates have to have to really be on hold, at least, you know, non-virtual playdates where kids are, are getting really close and interacting, but but certainly getting outside and exercising and getting some fresh air is, is really important. And then as the local and state health departments start to loosen restrictions, just following closely what those restrictions are, and, you know, eventually, hopefully, the parks and more play spaces will open up so that we can, you know, have more access, but we just have to be careful. Now, one of my next questions was, at what point can, parent, can parents even start thinking about having playdates again? Yeah, I think I think just listening to the you know, local state health departments and, you know, the, the, the governors as they as they roll things out, it's 
I think it's maybe too much to put that on a parent or a family to figure that out themselves. So just listening to what the local regulations are, you know, the state and the state governments and like I said, local health departments are doing everything they can to follow the data and try to get a good understanding of how this infection is spreading. And it's going to be a combination between showing that we are on top of this and that the rate is starting of infections is starting to come down in combination with having more available testing for the virus. And, and we're starting to see this, but ultimately having antibody testing to try to get a sense as to who has been infected, who might, might ultimately be immune. Hopefully this virus will cause lasting immunity. All those things together will go into the calculations that, you know, local and, and state officials are, are making and, you know, together with, with scientists at CDC and other organizations to determine how we can, in a thoughtful and staged approach, you know, reopen our country. And when with that reopening, of course, comes the reopening of child care centers, daycare centers. Is that a good idea? Is there a way to do that safely? I just think about all the kids. I mean, anybody who's had who's even seen little kids knows it's impossible to keep kids from, you know, not putting their fingers in their mouths and putting toys in their mouths and all that stuff. Yeah, that's probably <laughs> it, it's a tough situation, right? On, you know, on one hand, Families need childcare, you know, just like kids need to go to school for so many reasons, you know, so parents can work, so kids can develop socially, emotionally, and physically. But we need to be thoughtful about, you know, when this can happen. You know, even if, even if the vast, it's true that the vast majority of kids aren't getting very sick from this virus, and we think that's the case, although we're still learning. You know, some are going to get infected and they can pass the virus to, to daycare workers, other children. And then, like you said, that's probably it's, it's a really it's a very rich environment for for viral transmission. So, you know, I think similar to what I mentioned about when we can open other parts of our uh, of society, you know, ideally we'd be able to test children, test daycare workers on demand for presence of the virus in schools, test, test teachers and, and other, other staff for immunity. If we had, once we have good and widely available, accessible antibody tests, um, making sure that in everywhere, schools, you know, but daycare centers in particular, that we can, you know, that people can practice good hand hygiene. You mentioned kids are constantly putting things in their mouths. It's very difficult to institute social distancing in a daycare, right? Um, because, kids, you can't be six feet apart from infants all the time. So I think that's going to have to, you know, a fair amount is going to have to happen before we we see all the daycares open. Um, but we, again, need to be able, as when the, when the infection rate is decreasing, when daycares can show that they can have appropriate staffing ratios, making sure they have the, you know, the, in the local infrastructure for performing good hand hygiene, if there's personal protective equipment such as masks or gloves that they, they, they can, you know, use to help decrease transmission, but really ideally testing. And then, and then just like with schools or work with daycare, if kids are sick or if the daycare staff members, the caregivers are sick, 
state, there need to be policies in place to keep them home. And, you know, that can be challenging, but all those things really need to happen. And then, and I think the centers, just like schools and workplaces, have to have contingency plans in place for if, if they were to reopen and an out, a local outbreak were to occur, there need to be contingency, contingency plans to, you know, quickly limit the spread by either keeping kids or certain employees out or, or shutting down again temporarily. So it's, it's a tough situation. Are parents still bringing their kids in for well checks and regular vaccines? Are there scheduled um, vaccines, I should say? Yeah, it, it's, it's a good question. So we, we don't have data from everywhere, but that those visits are certainly down you know, across the country. Some of that is intentional. We at Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia Care Network have rolled out a robust telemedicine operation to, you know, complement these in-person visits. And I think this is happening across the country and potentially across the world. So some in-person visits can be substituted by telephone or video calls, but not all of them, you know, and certainly for particularly very young children, for example, newborns and young infants who need to, to have, you know, frequent checks and get their vaccines you know, you certainly can't give a vaccine by by Zoom call, and and there are certain aspects of the newborn exam, but even the young child or older child encounter that really are difficult to do without in-person visits. So, the the in-person visits are down, and unfortunately, you know, the a, the American Academy of Pediatrics has noted that vaccinations. Uh, routine vaccinations are down, but these need we need to find ways to make this happen. As I mentioned before, families need to understand that we are open for business, and they should talk with their doctors about which parts of their which which checkups or which parts of checkups and encounters can be accomplished remotely, um, and which ones really need the patients to come in. We don't want children to miss their vaccines or delay their vaccines. And we certainly don't want parents of children to be too nervous or worried to come to the doctor to get their checkups and to be seen, certainly to be seen if they're, if they're worried about their child is ill. We know how to manage this. We have policies in place for preventing transmission of infection in our outpatient facilities and our inpatient facilities, people should be feel feel empowered to contact their doctor and to come to visits that are that are necessary. What what is the ramification if enough parents don't keep up with the regular vaccine schedule? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. We run the risk of of increasing infections with vaccine preventable diseases. You know, as we've seen. Sadly, over the last couple of decades in the United States and across some parts of the world, as vaccination rates have decreased, for example, with measles vaccine, we've seen outbreaks of measles infection. And so that will happen. It it might not happen immediately, but when we get to a certain threshold, when we get below a certain threshold of vaccination for these these vaccine-preventable diseases, and it differs across diseases, but once we get below a certain threshold, we will see 
outbreaks of vaccine-preventable diseases, and, and we need to, to, to prevent that from happening. Dr. Gerber, thank you so much for joining us here on Death on In-Depth. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. All right. Stay well. Thanks. You too. Thank you. Bye-bye. Take okay, care. Bye. That's it for this episode of KYW In-Depth Coronavirus. For more stories about the coronavirus pandemic, or if you just want to know more than what you're hearing on the news right now, if you want to go a little deeper, if you want to know how this could change your life or your routine, then subscribe to the KYW In-Depth podcast. Search for KYW In-Depth on the Radio.com app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Carol McKenzie, and we'll have another episode out soon. 